After that scripture reading, I'm sure you're all wondering what I'm about to say. You should have seen your faces when it was read. We need the power of Christ to understand it, so let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would open uh, this passage of scripture to us and help us know how it is we are to have good relationships with one another and good marriages. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, women, don't be looking at me like that. <laughs> be okay, don't worry. If you, uh, if you spend any time studying Shakespeare's plays, you'll notice that he has a, he's a bit of a pessimist when it comes to marriage, because whenever he ends one of his plays with a wedding, that play is a comedy, a happy ending, because you don't know what's going to happen after the wedding. But whenever he begins one of his plays with a wedding and you get to see the marriage unfold throughout the play, that play is always a tragedy. And by the end, everybody is dead. Make of that what you will, no pun intended. Someone over there was an English major. We are doing a series of sermons called Remade, about how Jesus makes all things new. And one of the things that Jesus promises that he can make new is our marriages. And I know that the passage we just read is a bit tough. Uh, It sounds a bit sexist to our uh, contemporary ears. But I believe that it has been misused, misapplied over the years. And that, and I know it's caused a lot of pain to women, but that if we read it carefully enough, I don't think it's nearly as sexist as it sounds. In fact, I think it's a really great description of a good marriage. But I'll get to that in a minute. I think this passage that we just read applies to everyone in this room regardless of our marital status. Because all of us are either married, hoping to get married, or we know someone who's going to get married or is married. And if we're hoping to get married, I think this passage describes the kind of relationship we're looking for. If we are married, I think it talks about how we can have a good marriage. And if we know someone who's married, I think it is married, I think it helps us know how we can support them, advise them, and pray for them. And I think the subject is very important because with a 50% divorce rate in our country, it just seems like marriage doesn't work. But all those divorces is not what God wants for us. God says in the Bible, I hate divorce. Now notice he doesn't say I hate divorced people. He says I hate divorce because divorce causes so much pain to the couple involved to their children, to their friends, to their family. God says he hates divorce because he loves divorced people and he doesn't want to see people in pain. The word sin means to fall short of God's intended best for us. And in that sense of the word, divorce is a sin. And as you know, I say that as a person who has gone through a divorce. And, and, and with Jesus, we know that there is always grace. Jesus always offers grace, forgiveness, and second chances. And we're grateful for that. But divorce is not what God wants for any of us because it causes so much pain. Plus, it's not like it solves any problems either. Did you know that second marriages fail at a higher rate than first? And third marriages fail at an even higher rate? You see, you don't necessarily change your problems by changing your partners. Because wherever you go, there you are. And you bring your baggage with you. All packed and ready to go. When asked about it, Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. 
But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, again, from the rest of Scripture, we know that there's forgiveness for sin and second chances. But for all of those who are divorced, and that includes me, instead of trying to justify our divorces in our head or out loud by talking about what a jerk the other person was, so we just had to do it, instead, can we simply confess this? That because of the hardness of our hearts, God help us at the time we could do no other. Lord, forgive me. Now, I want to add, there are times when divorce really is the lesser of two evils. Multiple adulteries, prolonged substance abuse, and certainly if you are being physically abused, you need to get out of that marriage and get safe. But for most of us, Jesus wants to help us have good marriages. And where marriages are on the rocks, God wants to make those marriages new, not make new marriages. And when couples take divorce off the table as an option, you'd be surprised at how creative they get at solving their problems because they have no other choice. You see, I think part of the problem in our culture is that we tend to enter relationships asking the wrong question. We tend to ask, are you the right person for me? Let me answer that for you. No. (laughs) Nobody is the right person for you. We're all flawed. In fact, just as a reminder right now, I want you to just, if you're married, just say to yourself, I am not married to the perfect person. Just, just say that. Not married to the... Right? And that may give you a moment of feeling superior until you realize your spouse just said the same thing about you. Right? The wrong question to ask is, are you the right person? The right question to ask is, how are we going to make this work? And that is the secret to having a good marriage. Trust me, I've been in a good marriage. I've been in a bad marriage. I know the difference. I alone, of all human beings, am enlightened. Candle, (laughs) shining in universal darkness. Here is the secret to having a good marriage. You both decide to do what it takes to make the marriage good. Not that you're just going to survive. Not that you do whatever it takes to make the other person happy so they'll get off your back. Not just avoid divorce, but have a good marriage. And here's where I think the passage we read today isn't some kind of sexist passage meant to oppress women, though it's been used that way, but is a wonderful description of a good relationship. And the first verse is the most important. What does it say? Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And that is the clause that governs everything else. This is about mutual submission. Not just wives submitting, but husbands submitting to their wives. You see, in the Bible, submission is not a synonym for doormat. uh, uh, Submission is always mutual in Scripture. In fact, most of this passage is addressed to the husbands. It only takes a few sentences to talk to the women, but takes paragraphs to tell the men what to do. (laughs) Because we need things explained very slowly to us. And since most of the passage addresses husbands, a lot of my remarks will be aimed in that direction. But wives, you listen in and maybe get some good ammunition. And I'll talk along the way about how this passage relates to wives, too. But let's start with the husbands. Passage says, husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church. And how does Christ love the church? Well, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. The Bible says that even though Jesus was equal to God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
But he made himself, took on the very nature of a servant and humbled himself and became obedient to death. In other words, Jesus serves the church so that the church can become everything God intends it to be. So if husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loves the church, let me ask you this question. In the relationship between Christ and the church, who makes the first move of submission? Jesus does. And then the church responds. So guys, in marriage, the first move of submission is yours. You submit first. Women, how are you liking this passage now? <laughs> Getting better, isn't it? Someone wants to shout amen. I can feel it coming. And why does the guy submit first? Well, I think it's because God knew that in most cultures, men usually have more socioeconomic power than women. And the only way to level the playing field and give women a fair shot was if the man submitted first and if men submitted first and served their wives. And then it's the wife's job to respond in kind. You see, this passage is not about who gets to be the boss. Jesus is the boss. It's about who serves whom first. And I think this plays itself out practically in a couple of ways. First, for both husbands and wives, it means that we should serve each other in the daily little ways. You know, I, I, I've heard a lot of guys say things like, well, of course I serve my wife. Why? I'd take a bullet for her. Yes, yes, very macho. We're all very impressed, right? And it's very convenient since it's probably never going to happen, is it? <laughs> and what's the use of saying I'd take a bullet for my wife when you come home from work, plop down on the couch and say, where's my dinner? Right? Forget about the bullet you're never going to have to take for your wife. Get off the couch and make your own dinner, right? Or make hers even better. It comes down to serving each other in the little ways for both men and women. Do we listen to each other? Take out the trash, do the dishes, help each other out. Second thing this passage says husbands and wives should do is to help each other become everything God intended them to be. Because that's what Jesus does for the church. A long time ago, I was in a men's small group with a guy whose wife worked at Hewlett-Packard, and she just loved using her gifts that way, and she was very good at it. But when they had kids, he insisted that she quit her job and stay home because he was the head of the house, in spite of the fact that she made twice as much money as he did and that he actually was more gifted with kids than she was. She, he loved being with kids. He was really good at it. He would have been a great stay-at-home dad. Right? To make it worse, when they went to buy a house, he insisted on making all the decisions because he was the head of the house even though her job was to do real estate for her company. And she knew way more about it. But because they misinterpreted this passage, she let him make all of the decisions, and they bought a really lousy house for way too much money. So in the Bible study, we'd always kind of challenge him on this. We'd say, how's that working out for you? Huh? Yeah, and he'd say, why don't you let her help? And he'd say, well, I'm the head of the house. And we'd say, no, you're stupid. And your ego is costing you a lot of money. Right? Would Jesus do this to the church? Jesus would never say to the church, stay at home, barefoot and pregnant, don't go out into the world, right? Jesus sends the church out into the world to use our gifts for his glory. Men, your job is to empower your wives to become everything God designed them to be. And women, your job is to return that in kind. But men go first. Because in most cultures... Men are more, usually tend to get more empowered than women do. In our house, Christina handles all of our retirement and investments, even though that's sort of stereotypically a kind of a guy thing, because she's gifted at it. She's really good at it, right? 
In fact, I don't even know where all our money is. She could be taking me for a ride. <laughs> stashing it all away for when she leaves me for the tennis pro named Skip, right? I mean, but she's the one to do it because she's the one that has the gifts for it. It's not about, this passage isn't about who's the boss. It's about who serves whom first. The gender roles here follow biology. Male is that part of the species that sows the seed that gets the process of life started. And it is the female's role to nurture that seed, make it grow, and give it back in a more fully developed form. It's about mutually serving each other. But when it comes to who makes the first move to get this healthy cycle going, men, that's your job. That's what it means to be the spiritual leader of your home. And if you ain't doing it, you need to man up and start doing it. And when in doubt, ask the question my wife always asks me, would Jesus do this to the church? And if not, well, then what would he do instead? And women, your job is to do the same thing for your husband and then to respect your husband. And that word respect is very important. And here's where I think Paul is getting at something very psychologically deep. It's interesting to me that Paul ends the passage by saying husbands should love their wives, but that wives should respect their husbands. He uses two different words, love and respect. Now, we all want to be both loved and respected. But I think if men had to choose, I think respect is just a little bit more important to us. You know, when my wife says to me, I love you, that is very meaningful to me. But when she says, I respect you, I respect the way you're trying to lead the church, or I respect the way you're being a father, it's just all that much more powerful for me. And I know I'm skating out onto thin ice here by assigning gender roles, right? I'm going to get emails. So let me do what every male would do in this position. Let me hide behind my wife. Because she tells me that she believes that most women would say that, of course, they want respect. But of the two, being loved is probably the more meaningful for them, whereas for men it's probably respect. And if you don't agree with that, you can send your emails to christinadudley at (laughs) msn.com. Wives, your husbands crave your respect. Give it to them. And men, if you want respect, you need to be respectable by loving your wife the way Christ loves the church. And wives, if your husband isn't earning your respect, you need to gently say to him, I need you to be this kind of a man for me. Because part of respecting him is believing that he can be a better man. And husbands, your wives crave your love. Give it to them. And wives, if you want love, be lovable. Don't always scold. Tell them what you respect about them. Stuff like that. Love and respect. So very practically speaking, how can we put this passage into action this week? Well, if you're not married but hoping to get married, let this be a guide to the kind of relationship you're looking for, one of mutual servanthood. And as you wait for that relationship, cooperate with Jesus to become the kind of person who can do this kind of love. And for those of us who are married, I think this can translate into everyday life in a couple of ways. First, we need to spend time with each other. When couples come into my office in crisis, I always ask them two questions. Do you have a regular date night? And do you go to bed at the same time together most nights? So that you can have time together as a couple without the kids if you've got them. Right? And a date night doesn't have to be expensive or extravagant. It could be just a walk around the block. But spend time together. Another thing you can do, and it seems simple, but we don't do it, 
is talk about issues rather than withdraw. You know, as couples, we withdraw from each other in a lot of ways. TV, work, golf, right, the kids. But the worst form of withdrawal is to avoid talking about the things that are bothering us in our marriages. Do you know what the two most dangerous words for any marriage is? I'm fine. Right? Someone, someone seems a little upset, and so you ask, you know, are you all right? And they say, I'm fine. Why? What's wrong with you? Right? That's withdrawal. Instead, communicate with each other. And not by yelling, not by accusing, but simply saying, here's what I'm feeling. And then say, how are we going to handle this? Because your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is the problem in your marriage, and you and your spouse need to get on the same team and work on that problem together as a team. One woman told me that she and her husband hold hands whenever they're fighting because it helps them stay more focused and feel more like a team. You know, that's communication. She, she says occasionally they may squeeze each other a little harder than normal. Right? It's a form of communication too. Another practical thing you can do is go to the marriage class we're offering. You'll get good teaching on marriage and as a couple have time to talk. In fact, you don't have to talk to anyone else except your spouse. There's an introduction tonight or you can come next week. There's even childcare, free childcare. Okay, that alone might fix your marriage, right? <laughs> and even if your marriage is strong, this class can make it stronger. And finally, if you're struggling in your marriage, let me say to you, there is hope. I have seen marriages overcome huge challenges, even adultery. So if you're struggling, go get a good counselor and work on it. And more importantly, instead of focusing on all your spouse's mistakes... Start praying this prayer, Lord, show me my sin in this marriage. How am I making this marriage hard? And don't come up with trivial little peccadillos. You know, I leave my socks on the floor. No one gets divorced over socks. What are the real ways that you are making your marriage hard? And if both of you do that, if both of you confess your sins to each other and ask for forgiveness, your marriage can be healed. And again, I'm not talking to those of you who may be in an abusive relationship or something like that. I'm talking to those of us in sort of normal marriages, more or less. And finally, and I think the most important thing to do, is to put Jesus in your marriage. Hang on to Jesus. A lot of you have heard the statistic that couples who go to church have the same divorce rate as everyone else in our culture, and that's true. But did you know that couples who pray together and serve together, some evidence suggests that the divorce rate goes all the way down to 1%. In other words, going to church isn't enough. You've got to live it. You have to, you have to hang on to Jesus, and when you do, he can make your marriage whole. There's a couple who goes to this church, and the husband has struggled with lust for his entire life, which showed up in a lot of different ways. But one way was while, while, a while back, he ended up in a bar, and he ended up kissing a strange woman. And then he ended up going to a strip club. Jesus says that if you even think about adultery, you've done it, and he did a little bit more than think about it. Well, he told his wife about it, and she was devastated. She didn't feel loved. She didn't feel safe. She'd struggled in the past with feeling valued, and this didn't help at all. It was a huge betrayal for her, very painful. On top of that, they had three kids under the age of five who they love very much, but that's a tough time for a lot of marriages because kids require so much that couples often don't have a lot left over for each other. They were also deeply in debt. Some of that was because of student loans, but some of that was because of her spending habits and her shopping sprees. 
And her husband didn't help very much. I mean, sometimes he'd get angry about it, but mostly he tried to ignore it instead of talking constructively about it. And he was frustrated because he'd been considering a job, a career change, but because of the debt, he couldn't, and so he felt trapped. And over time, they started talking less and less. Their physical intimacy was less and less frequent. And hovering over it all was that darn kiss that had wounded her so deeply. And for a while, it didn't look like their marriage had a lot of hope. And as they told me their story, I I had to sit there and wonder sometimes too. But they did one thing right. They hung on to Jesus, and he was faithful. One day she was reading her Bible and came across a passage in 1 Corinthians that says that husbands and wives shouldn't deny each other physical intimacy. So she showed that to her husband and said, Look, we're sinning by not having sex. He quickly agreed. (laughs) Was very glad that she read her Bible. They got a Christian uh, uh, financial counselor who's helping them get out of debt free of charge. They read a book called Love and Respect that talks about men's desire to be respected and women's desire to be loved. And he began to see that he hadn't made her feel loved at all. Every stray eye, every angry word confirmed her fears that he didn't love her and that she wasn't safe with him. And she began to see that every time she overspent or scolded him, that was one more way of telling him that she did not respect him. So he began to encourage her to use her gifts, told her what those gifts were, told her she was a great mom and an awesome wife and he didn't want anyone else. She began to tell him that she respected the ways that he was providing for for the family. And they both were smart enough to focus on their own sin and start dealing with their own sin rather than pointing the finger at the other person. And over time, the Holy Spirit started to supernaturally heal some of those old wounds and stitch their marriage back together again. Not instantly, but over time. Now, is everything perfect now? Of course not. Do they still struggle? Absolutely they have struggles. Every marriage does. But they have seen Jesus remake their marriage, and it's stronger now than it was before because it's been fire-tested and it's survived. Jesus can make our marriages new again. And the more we hang on to him and the more we experience his love, the more we will be able to love in the same kind of way that he's loved us, which is the point of this passage. It's also what I think the Apostle Paul is getting at at the end of this passage, where he says that marriage is really a metaphor for our relationship with God. You see, Jesus doesn't boss us around. Jesus doesn't lord anything over us. He loves us enough to die for us so that we could be reconciled to God. And he respects us so much that he calls us to partner with him in redeeming the world. I love the way the traditional marriage vows put it. I take you to have and to hold from this time forward, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, forsaking all others till death do us part. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and all that I am and all that I have I give to you. That is exactly what Jesus says to us. At the cross, Jesus says to you and me, I take you at your best and at your worst, whether you're married or whether you're single, when your marriage is strong and when it isn't, in all your faithfulness and in all your faithlessness, in all your strengths and in all your weaknesses, I take you. With my body, I redeem you, and all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. You see, marriage is an earthly model of the radical, romancing, respectful way 
that God loves us. And when Jesus is involved, any marriage, and for that matter, any friendship, any family relation, anything, no matter how far gone, can be remade for our good and the glory of God if we'll just let him in. Lord Jesus, for those of us who are married here, we ask that you would help us to have strong marriages. For those who are hoping to be married, Lord, meet us as we wait. Be our companion and help us to have relationships that honor you and help us to become the kind of people who can do those relationships well so that all our relationships can be strong. Lord, we invite you in and ask for your help. We pray this in your name. Amen.